Paul had been on his second missionary journey and he'd left Philippi with his missionary team, Silas and Timothy, and they went through a few towns and then they got to Thessalonica, uh, which was in the Roman province of Macedonia. And uh, as he did in the, most of the towns that he visited, he uh, did a church plan, as you do. He spent only like about three weekends there. Uh, and in that short time, he found the synagogue, persuaded some Jews, including some leading um, women, um, uh, to convert to Christianity. And, um, but there was a whole lot of other people that were against it and were in an uproar. And so in the town, there was um, you know, a lot of problems. And you can read about this in Acts 17. So Paul and Silas left secretly at night. And um, we've been pretty lucky so far in our church plan after 18 months not to have experienced any kind of major opposition like that. Um, but it's not going to always be like that. Um, I know we're not living in Thessalonica, but we are living in Melbourne and churches do experience opposition. So it might happen to us one day, but I promise you I won't leave secretly at night. Um, so this was a dangerous start to the ministry. Um, nevertheless, the church started well. That's the thing about opposition. It actually can have this paradoxical effect of being a positive thing for a church. Rather than weakening it, it actually can strengthen it. They faced ongoing opposition. And so less than a year after they started the plant, Paul sent Timothy back from Corinth. He went back to Thessalonica to give them some support. And when Timothy came back to Corinth to give the report, he said to Paul, you know, they're doing pretty well. They're doing pretty well, considering all the problems that they've been facing. So Paul wrote this letter in response, and uh, he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to um, push them forward. And uh, he, he demonstrated to them straight away how affectionate he was towards to them. You know, in the life of a minister, um, there are some people and some congregations who stand out in your memory. You think back and you go, wasn't that, weren't they the golden years? Or weren't they such amazing people? I felt, felt such a connection. I think back to when I was on the Queenscliff Theos team back in the 90s. There was just this golden moment for me of just everyone was just like having a great connection and ministering well together. And that's kind of what Paul had with this church that he'd only spent a few weeks with. He talks later on in, in the letter about being like a nursing mother to them and being like a warm um, father with his children. So when he says in verse 2 that he always thanks God for them, I don't think he's exaggerating. You know, it's not just one of those Christian sort of things to say to encourage someone and don't really mean it. I think he really did pray about them all the time, just as he said he did. So to encourage them in this letter, he make, basically makes three points across the letter, uh, or three themes at least. First, first of all, he praises them for sticking at their faith under persecution. He also teaches them some specifics about holy living. And then thirdly, he helps them understand the second coming of Jesus. And actually, 1 and 2 Thessalonians is particularly focused on this. We often, when we want to read up in the Bible about the end of time and I wonder what it's going to be like, we often jump straight to Revelation. But actually, 1 and 2 Thessalonians is a really... A significant book book for that. Oop. Sorry, just turn off my own mic. A significant book for that. Um, 
And you'll find um, woven through the letters uh, <coughs> references to um, hope. Yeah, the battery's dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's red. I'll just talk loudly. Um, so the big theme that he's got is um, living holy lives in hope of the return of Jesus. And that's what we're going to explore over this series. The way um, Paul begins this letter is to tell the young church plant how excited he is. He's really encouraged about their faith. And uh, he assures them that their faith is real and, and, and he praises God for that. And what we're going to find out in these words of encouragement and thanks to God is Paul's thoughts about what actually causes people uh, to become Christians. How do you actually become a Christian? And um, how do you know if your faith is really real? Do you know why you're a Christian? Do you know the difference between being a person who is a cultural Christian and a person who's actually changed by God? And do you know why you're not a Christian? Um, These are questions that you might think, oh, that's kind of obvious and and, and preliminary, isn't it, for for us here? But um, I'm surprised all the time when I talk to Christians and non-Christians that so often their response to, say, if you're talking to a Christian about why you're a Christian, they're stumped. They don't know the answer to that question. And um, when you're talking to a non-Christian about why you're not a Christian, what I find is a lot of ignorance. They're not exactly sure even what a Christian is. And they're opposing something that they're actually not clear about. So it's, it's good for us to explore this. How do you actually become a Christian? What actually causes you to become a Christian? What makes for a, a community to be really transformed by the gospel? And this is what Paul's thankful for. So let's have a look at that. First of all, Paul says, you become a Christian because of the gospel. Uh, look at verse 4 and 5. This is kind of obvious. But I'll still say it because it's important. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. Later on, he says um, the gospel of God, or he talks about his gospel um, in chapter 2. What is the gospel? Um, I don't want to assume that you know it. Um, uh, It's not often that I'll, I'll give you a summary. But basically, the gospel is this. It's the idea that we've been created by God to enjoy him, but that actually we've failed to do that. And um, we've lived selfish lives, sinful lives, of evil and injustice. And we deserve God's punishment for that. But because God is a God of love, because he's a God of grace, he sent his son, Jesus, who lived and died um, and was punished on the cross for our sins because of what we did. And everyone who, by the grace of God, believes in Jesus have their sins forgiven and have their relationship with God restored and are given eternal life. That's a very small snapshot of what the gospel is, right? And I could expand it and talk about a whole lot of other things. And that's not kind of the point of the talk. Um, The point of the talk is just to look at the dynamics of what transforms a Christian. Basically, though, what Paul's saying is you, you, you guys at Thessalonica didn't just become a Christian because... I was really fancy and persuaded you with my charisma, but he's saying you responded to the gospel. If you're um, not a Christian and you're not really sure what this gospel is that I just briefly mentioned, if you want to delve into that further, I encourage you to do that because perhaps you're opposing Christianity without really knowing what the central core values are. One of the mistakes that 
churches often make uh, is, and I don't want us to make this mistake at Mary Creek, is that um, we, we assume people know what the gospel is and over time it leaks out. Uh, several Christian writers have observed this dynamic that occurs across the generations of churches. Um, the first generation of Christians are converted and persuaded by the gospel, right? And they accept the gospel. The second generation, their children, assume it. They assume they know what it is. And then their children, the third generation, are confused by what it is, by who Jesus is and by what God's done for them. And the fourth generation lose the gospel and reject it altogether. And so this is why at church we should talk about the gospel all the time, never give up on it and not make the mistake of thinking it for the beginner Christians and then we move on from it. Um, if the gospel makes us a Christian, we have to look at it and know the gospel for ourselves. Secondly, Paul says to them, um, the reason why you've become Christians and I'm so excited and I'm confident in what's going on in you, you church in Thessalonica, is because of the power of the gospel. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So the gospel is more than a message. It's not just a piece of information, but it has its own legs, its own muscle. Uh, Romans 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. When it takes effect on someone's life, it stirs something inside of them, something spiritual. It causes a disturbance in the force, to use Star Wars language. It's like, I, I like to think of the gospel being like God's scalpel to the heart. He digs in and pulls something out, changes it. And you know, you're becoming Christian. You know when something is up, when you hear the gospel talked about, you hear the Bible read, and something starts to stir in you. In the second letter of the church in Corinth, chapter 4, to the church in Corinth in chapter 4, to 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the light of the gospel displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the Bible actually says that we little human beings cannot look with our eyes at God because what happens is we would just burn up. He's too glorious and radiant for us to actually look at him. Um, and that's why Moses had to look only at the back of God's head, which I love that little bit in the Old Testament, when he was up in the mountain. But the gospel enables our hearts to perceive Jesus as the Son of God and to get a glimpse of who God is. Kind of like, uh, you know... Uh, Paul says, now we see in a glass dimly. That's what the gospel enables our hearts to see. See God dimly. Just a glimpse of him. And that's enough for us to be persuaded. You might start investigating the gospel, but then you soon realise something else is investigating you. That's why Paul writes in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. You don't take up God. God takes up you. God's the shepherd who goes out to find the sheep. We're not the sheep who goes out to find the shepherd. So when you start your existential search and something is disturbing you, that's the power of the gospel. You hear the call, it grabs you. You perceive Christ, the very image of God. 
how do you experience that power? In verse 6, Paul reminded the church in Thessalonica that, as he said, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And it's often the case that the power of the gospel hits us when we're suffering. Like a wave approaching us in the surf. You see it in the distance, you see the ripple, and it builds and it builds, and you think, what's that? And then suddenly it takes over your head. This happens when we're struggling sometimes with life. Maybe a relationship's broken down, or we haven't got a job that we thought we'd get, or we've become sick. Someone close to you has died. We find ourselves staring into the sky or at the ceiling in our bedroom at night and going, what is life all about? And it's that time when if God's power through the gospel is taking effect on us that we can sometimes feel like this weightiness, the weightiness of the glory of God on us. And if you've never felt this weight, this disturbance, this supernatural wave, the power of the Holy Spirit and the deep conviction, to use the language of the passage, in verse 4, if you haven't experienced that, then maybe you haven't become a Christian yet. It's possible. Um, sometimes uh, people want to play down the role of experience. But I, I do think that there is a point at which the gospel has to be more than an intellectual exercise. It has to be something that transforms us from inside out. So if right now you're feeling stirred up, maybe even annoyed, maybe you want to stand up and walk out, that could be God actually working in your heart. Perhaps God's speaking to you. Thirdly, he's encouraged by um, their state as a church because they actually turned away from idols. So you know you're becoming a Christian because you turn away from your idols. Now, interestingly, in Thessalonica, they weren't a community that worshipped statues. But there were lots of other areas around town where people did worship statues. But in Thessalonica, they didn't really worship statues. So why is he talking about the fact that they turned away from idols? What's he talking about? An idol is basically anything that you worship that is not God. Every culture has their idols. Every culture does. Um, for people living in Melbourne's inner north, our idols could be, for example, romantic relationships could be an idol. We believe romantic relationships will be um, the solution to all our problems. We tell ourselves that once we're in a relationship, all of our problems will go away. Uh, Kenneth Brenner recently did a, a remake of Cinderella. And one of the most annoying things um, for me when I'm reading some Christian literature, but it's not just in Christian literature, you see it all around the place, um, and feminists hate, hate this, is that what's called the Cinderella syndrome. This idea that um, some, some, some women think that um, all they need is a, a Prince Charming to come and save them from their drudgery. That, that, that's, that's no good, is it? That sort of thinking. There's no man that's that good, really. They're not going to love you that much. And you might laugh, but a lot of girls think like this. And, and I don't, hopefully I'm not doing gender stereotyping too much here, but guys do a different thing. Guys go for the beauty and the beast myth, don't we? This idea that some princess is going to come and the beautiful girl is just... She's just going to solve all our problems. She'll be hot and everything will just go away, all my issues. But there's no one who's that beautiful, no girl. There's no girl that's hot, that, that, that is that, that hot. Uh, it's going to be, sound strange, but Jesus is the only one who's that beautiful. He's the only one who will love you unconditionally. 
the only one whose radiance will actually make your life turn upside down. Another thing we idolise in, in and off it can be kids. Um, there's an epidemic of kids. <laughs> Just this school here at Clifton Hill Primary, five years ago had 400 kids, now it's got 700 kids. That's a lot of growth. Uh, family, apparently families are moving in um, like, like a great, at a great rate of knots into this area because of the medium density living, they say. Now you know kids aren't themselves the problem, it's the parents. You know yes, you're making an idol of your kid uh, because you gear your whole life around them in a way that's um, unhealthy. All you ever talk about is your kids. Um, you, your kids are your idol if you get a sense of self-worth through them. An unhealthy sense of self-worth. It's a dangerous path because one day they will turn on you. I don't mean reject you altogether. I don't mean that they're going to necessarily divorce you as their pa as parents. But one day they'll start making their own decisions and living their own lives and living out their own dreams instead of your dreams. What are you going to do then if they're your idol? Apparently the new Pixar film Inside Out, which I've not seen yet because it literally just launched, is actually worth seeing because it challenges this idea about um, how happiness is actually pursued and if it's even really possible in the way that kind of mainstream pop psychology says it is. Um, and it's, I think it might be a good challenge to the idolatry of kids. Um, also, if you want to explore in and off people idolising children, read the slap. Anyway, there are other idols. Careers, creative pursuits, leisure. You know you're becoming a Christian when you say to those things, you're not my God, you're not my solution, only the God of the Bible is. That's where I get my meaning. You know you're questioning your idols when the voice in your head that tells you you're no good and you're only getting your worth through this other thing when that voice is overtaken by the voice of God. Okay, I've come to an epilogue now. The bit at the end of the book that, yeah, add on to say something a little bit different. Um, what about Christians and the power of the gospel and idols? Because many of us here are Christians and we don't feel like we can identify with the church in Thessalonica who are going so well and rejecting their idols and being transformed. We ourselves, some of us, will struggle with our idols still, with a lack of gospel power in our lives. We don't necessarily feel the weight of God. We don't necessarily feel like we're seeing the image of God in, it, in our hearts. You still hear that voice telling you that you're worthless even though you have Jesus. And why is that? The fact is that all Christians struggle at different times and with different intensities. Some struggle a lot, some struggle a little. And we get the clue from verses 9 and 10. Because the Thessalonians were actually doing really well, even though they were suffering. And the thing is that drove them to do so well is they lived in hope for Jesus' return. They turned from idols and served the living and true God, verse 10, and waited for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In this time while we wait, if we forget to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we forget to hope for his return, we will look back to our idols to save us. We will feel the pressure from the world to conform. 
We might get mocked by our friends for decisions we've made. We might not be noticing the power of the gospel in our lives. And so we become apathetic. So we slip back into our old sins. But it doesn't have to be like this. I don't want us to believe the lie that the only way to be as a Christian is to be apathetic or flaky. There are Christians in the world, they were in Thessalonica, and I think there are some here today and there are some all around the world, who actually have a conviction that they live by that comes from the power of the gospel and they live in hope for Jesus' return and they know the joy of Jesus. And it is possible to be like this and I want us all to be like this at Mary Creek. Look at, look at how they were in verse 3 earlier in the passage. He's just saying, you guys are so good. We remember before our God and Father your, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. This is what you aim for if you want to have the kind of church that's a little bit like the Thessalonians. Exciting and enriching. Talked about by other churches. That's what he says in the passage. All these other churches are talking about how great you are, how great things are going. The point is not to aim to be like famous or anything. But it's just to say that you're encouraging lots of people. So many churches uh, love to focus on one of these things, faith or hope or love. But Paul actually brings the three together and says this is what's really important. Let's think about it. Faith. Some churches love to focus on faith. It's all about faith. It's all about Jesus. Let's just get our doctrine right and let's focus on that and make sure everyone's converted. But actually, lots of other churches don't focus on faith enough. Uh, they have their hobby horse. It's often a justice issue. And the justice issue becomes their gospel. And they've stopped looking at faith. And, uh, and so they're not actually pursuing faith in the way that Paul's talking about. So how can we at Mary Creek be a church that does help each other in the pursuit of faith? Uh, we can encourage each other to read our Bibles by going to community group and to pray together it's quite simple stuff we can be a mentor to somebody else or get a mentor just the normal kind of simple things you might have done when you're a teenager got to keep doing into our adult life what about love most churches will say there's very few churches will that will say we're not about love (laughs) most churches are into love loving each other but what do we really mean by this What does it look like at Mary Creek, Anglican, to love each other in the way that Paul's talking about? Well, it's really painfully practical. It means stacking the chairs at the end of the service when you don't feel like it. Or it means talking to people you don't know at the end of the service. Or it means inviting people out for coffee and, and, you know, organising to see a movie with a bunch of people maybe that you don't know that well instead of just the people that you love hanging around with. It means making meals for people and praying for people when you know they're struggling a bit. Uh, It means rebuking people in love. That's a bit we don't like to do. If if you think it's necessary, if you've got the right relationship with that person in the church, um, that's what really the kind of love that Paul's talking about. What about hope? They had hope. This is the hope for Jesus' return. There are very few churches um, in the West that have a focus on hoping for Jesus' return. Um, 
in the Anglican Church, you have it all written through the liturgy. But when we say it, what do we really mean? You know, do we really know what we mean? Theologically, in our heads, we could probably write the right sentence down on a piece of paper. But do we live in such a way as if we're hoping for his return? The Thessalonians had endurance to keep going, says Paul, in face of the trials, in face of the opposition, because of their hope. And we can encourage each other to hope and to endure by looking out for each other, by praying for each other. We can stand by each other when we're feeling weak. We can be honest with each other. We can remind each other of our shared hope when we're struggling. And when Jesus does return, one day he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So... um, you might be thinking, why are we talking about faith, hope and love again? What's the connection? The connection is, this is the evidence that Paul's pointing to when he thanks God for the transformation that has occurred in the lives of the church in Thessalonica. Paul can see that um, God has used his ministry and the ministry of his team to do big things. Paul can see that the gospel has been received in power and that they've turned from their idols. You can see their faith, hope and their love. And my prayer is that we'll be like this too at Mary Creek. And if Paul was here today, he'd write an equally encouraging letter. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we pray for our faith, our hope and our love at Mary Creek. Um, We pray that um, we can be transformed by the power of the gospel and that we can turn away from our idols. And we pray that we won't accept being a flaky Christian as the norm. We won't accept apathy and, um, I don't know, that if we're in a place of struggle, um, uh, we pray that we can not stand for that and that we can wrestle with our faith, that we can come before you in prayer, that we can encourage each other in the community um, to strive Um, for being a church that really is living in hope for your return. Amen.